Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 996 with Chef Sam Hart. In every aspect of your life, find a mentor. Because not only can you have your single vision, you can have someone who's focused on assisting you and getting there. And then also you can find, uh, eventually learn how to be a mentor too. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by Ovation. Creating a great guest experience is the goal of every restaurant every time but the ways to find out what's actually happening with your guests are terrible that's where ovation comes in ovation gets happy guests to leave you positive reviews and unhappy guests to share what happened and it gives you specific ideas to improve ovation it's frictionless for your guests easy for your managers and powerful for you if you're interested in actionable guest feedback visit ovationup.com slash unstoppable unstoppable listeners get $100 off their setup fee what are you waiting for that's ovationup.com slash unstoppable this episode is brought to you by One Huddle, a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. With One Huddle, you can onboard new employees up to 45% faster. There was actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven that you can train your employees 45% faster. This just isn't fluff. This is real stuff. One Huddle, this new and improved way to educate your staff will train translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience in both front of house and back of house, i.e. menu development, just learning the menu, POS, limited time offers, food costs, things like this. To learn more, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. That's the number one in huddle, like a football huddle. And when you use that link, you can get access to one huddles game shop, 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. One more time, restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, chef owner of Counter, Chef Sam Hart. Sam, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am feeling unstoppable today. Yeah, I'm man. glad to be here. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, I when I when you came onto my radar and I started reading your bio, and I, I'll be honest, man, I usually don't, 
go after publicists when they give me pitches because I want the show to be organic. Yeah. I want my, my conversations to, to you know, turn over the rocks and lead me to the next person to talk to. But if I have a great opportunity, I'm also not going to turn it down. And I think it was just a matter of time before our paths crossed. So I'm down in the self. I figured I got, I got to make this happen while I'm down here. And just in the, the time spent in your space, listening to you talk to you, your team behind the doors, I'm like, oh, this goes, this, this guy and I, we're going to, we're going to hit it off. So I'm happy we made this happen. Um, oh, side note, man, before we get too crazy, how about that documentary you're talking about? Okay. So <laughs> I, I have to I have to bring this to the conversation. <laughs> I was like, we're both nerds. I love this. Get I, right up on that mic, too. Don't be shy. I am definitely a huge, not only nerd, but like specifically in anthropology and archaeology. Yes, like dude, we're gonna get so my long. first, my first in in college. I went to a school in Central PA, and the whole reason I went there was because it was the number one rated archaeology program in the country. Oh. And my whole goal was knowing that they had a program where they would send you to Santorini in Greece, where they had just done a massive excavation, and they're pretty convinced that this is where Atlantis used to be. Yes. And I was, oh man, I got chills. There's also theories that the it's in Africa. Did you hear about that? Yeah. The north, the northwestern part of Africa. It's, it's, but it's youngest, wild. younger, 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 younger's driest theory. They say that, that might wipe it out. We could probably have a conversation. We after could, this we, podcast. yeah, yeah. But you were talking about for, or upon contact. Yes. If which, got, oh man. <laughs> I, so I briefly started it. How I discovered it was going down, you know, the black hole, rabbit hole of, you know, TikTok and YouTube last night because I I definitely don't believe in all conspiracy theories, but it's like there's no <laughs> way that all of them are wrong, yeah. you know, and uh, and especially when you've got like not necessarily like full on photographic evidence, but like there's Stories. too many eyewitness accounts yeah, and they're too consistent. Like if you were to tell if you were to ask all my cooks how yesterday went and what were the guests like, it would not have been consistent as some of the eyewitness yeah. accounts of some of these yeah, things. The, the, the yeah. color of the eyes of the alien dude, like, and like the smell and like the slimy thing, yeah, like man. the whole like secretion, <laughs> like we're, what? I think, this, I think we just broke a record for going down a rabbit hole, like straight out of the gates, but I was setting I didn't up. Know I was the, having a podcast with Joe Rogan. <laughs> right? I, I admit I have a huge man crush on his podcast and what he's doing. And I try to mimic what he's doing. This idea of just being open-minded and getting multiple yeah. perspectives and not trying to be the one with the answer, but to be the student and to go to people who know yeah. more and just to, to ask questions. He's um, he's got his moments too. Yeah. Every I mean no everyone does. No one's perfect, but um yeah. I am a big fan of a lot of uh the guests that he has on the show. I'm trying to remember the guy who like used to wear like the Gillies uh Gillies suit that was on there and he had a uh, he actually put his podcast at animation on oh, a Netflix series yeah, Midnight I Gospel. Yeah. I think it's like Dallas something. I know what you're talking about. Something like that. Sure. But like that details. Like I love all that stuff. Yeah. I'm obsessed with it. So I'm out here setting up <laughs> doing everything and I hear him. So in the middle of Brazil, there is this <laughs> and I literally busted the door open and I said upon first contact or upon contact and yes. Sorry for the intrusion. No, it was, was awesome. Like, oh my God. And our research and development director Ashley just looks at me as like it is now going to be a very weird podcast. And I was like, <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, it will be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, um, just uh, but 
the, the other thought I had and where I was going with this, what what's going on in your kitchen is what I miss the most about the industry of just shooting the <laughs> shit, like yeah. get, putting your head down, doing your job and just talking is in uh, it kind of brought me back to my days of being in the kitchen. And anyway, um, we haven't even shared your success quote or mantra yet, <laughs> but uh, let's, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Well, I love that you're asking for a, a success quote or mantra um, because I'm personally my Yana Buddhist. And so we, um, I recite mantras quite a bit throughout the day. And so uh, my success mantra actually came from my monk, uh, a gentleman named Gintalipa, 80-year-old Scottish dude. And he goes, you're always going to have problems in life. The goal in life is to have better problems every day. Mm. And so that's one thing that I always talk to um, everyone here is, okay, what were our problems today? Were they better than the problems that we had yesterday? So what do you mean by better problems? So like instead of maybe accidentally giving someone something that they're allergic to, maybe the problem this time was we forgot to wipe like one of the plates before it went or out. Or too many reservations. Or too many reservations. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's been a thing actually. Yeah. Um, good problems. Yeah. Though. Good problems. Yeah. It's good problems to have. Yeah. Awesome way to get this thing started. So where, where's the beginning for you, man? Where does it make sense to start sharing your story? So I think kind of the beginning of this whole crazy thing was, uh, when I was cooking for some friends of mine, uh, here in Charlotte. So I didn't really have a love of cooking growing up. I had a love of eating, um, but I didn't really have a love of cooking. I didn't have like a grandmother teaching me how to cook things. Um, so how I found cooking was through kind of necessity. Um, I moved out to Utah when I was, uh, 20, 21 and it was actually on my 21st birthday that I cooked for some friends and like fell in love with the whole thing. And so that, that was like 10 years ago. You were having a birthday and you were cooking for everyone else. Well, so I didn't have any friends. I literally, it's baked, well, <laughs> it's baked into your DNA. Well, it's actually really ridiculous how this happened. I went out to live in the Mormon bubble of Utah. I'm not Mormon, but I was following someone out there doing something stupid. I'm push this mic Ooh, come on, here we go. Ooh. Yeah, keep going. And when I moved out there, I didn't know anyone, didn't have any friends. The person that I followed out there for, it fell apart literally the next day. And I didn't really, I didn't have a place to live for the next few weeks. And so when I finally found a place to live, it was right before my birthday. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go buy myself a filet mignon. I want to buy myself some crab meat. I want to make filet mignon and crab cakes and I'm just going to have a feast. And then no joke. Cause I was living across the street from BYU's football stadium on North Canyon road, literally right before I start cooking, I just hear, and I go to the door and it's two Mormon missionaries. And these dudes were like, Hey, uh, you just moved into this apartment complex. We haven't met each other yet, but like, you know, we're the missionaries for this apartment complex here. And, uh, you got time to chat. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's my 21st birthday and I just made some food, (laughs) you know, you want to chat and eat some food. And then, um, yeah, that, that was the first time that I actually like legitimately from scratch cooked a meal for myself, but also it was thankfully with complete total strangers that I'd never met before. How'd that make you feel? It made me, it was really cool. Because thankfully I didn't screw anything up. At least looking back, I probably did. But in the moment, I was like, "Man, I really like nailed this thing." And uh, these two guys really enjoyed it. I mean, obviously, you know, they were <laughs> they had some stuff that they wanted to talk to um, uh, talk about. But 
um, it really gave me this feeling of, oh, this is what it's like to kind of have not necessarily, well, in a kind of, in a way, like nurture one another, like through conversation, through food and all that stuff. So I kind of just got addicted to it ever since then. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I love the most about food is I used to think it was actually the, the, the process. I do love cooking, but mm-hmm. it's the end result of the power to bring people together. It's yeah. the, the, the magic man for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, and, um, so what happened after this experience Were you like, cause this is where, what, cause I know you graduated college in 2011. So, well, I didn't graduate. Okay. Well, you're in college in 2011. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you went into the, the field of advertising. Is this before yeah. or after? So, uh, when I went out to Utah, um, I didn't have a job, but and I did a couple like little odd job type deals, uh, sold cars, worked at a gym selling memberships, worked at a sprint store, like all this crazy shit. Um, but my mom was at the time and she still works in newspapers, but she was at the time the publisher of a weekly newspaper here in Charlotte. And so I had been around advertising for a long period of my life and it was always something that I understood and I saw the value in it. So when I moved back to Charlotte, that's when I got involved with, um, a, billboard company called Adams Outdoor Advertising. And so that's when I got into slinging billboards. And from that, I started slinging radio ads for iHeartRadio about like a year after that. Maybe I can get some tips from you. Oh, man. (laughs) That's a wild, wild world, man. It's a crazy world. What was going on? Were you not fulfilled? Did you not enjoy the work? Um, Because ultimately, you were looking for something else. I'm not. So I'm not going to lie. I was very fulfilled. I was having an awesome time. Like I had my career trajectory. I knew what I wanted to do. I was making great money. I also, during that time span, I also got married. So like my life looked fantastic. And then what kind of screwed it all up and jumbled it all together and, and made my life crazy is that I had a couple of friends over for dinner one night and all of a sudden an album starts playing from, unfortunately, I hate to admit this now, Kanye West. Like, bro, why'd you have to His go? old stuff is magic, though. Yeah. Right? He's, you, but like, as crazy as he is, you cannot <laughs> deny the talent. Yeah, but like my biggest like life-changing <laughs> moment was to the music of Kanye West. It's like, oh, man. Which song? So it was Power from My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And so that came on. And I just like casually in the conversation with my friends go, man, it'd be really cool if a restaurant paired music with food instead of just like wine. And I couldn't sleep for the next two days. And I quit my job and went to culinary school. That's like crazy. literally just like that. I went to my general sales manager. I'll never remember this. Like, I'll never forget this. Ryan looks up at me and he's like, are you joking? I was like, no, April fools was last week. <laughs> I'm going into culinary school. And he said, well, you know what, man? We'll pay you through the next two weeks. We'll make sure that you get your commissions, but just go ahead and pack up and get ready for this next crazy thing that you're about to do. And um, yeah, so went to Central Piedmont Community College for culinary school. And that right is here in, in Charlotte. It is. Yep. So you were in number Utah one and rated. You came back? Yeah. Okay. Well, first off, I got to do a shout out to the CPCC, number one, number one rated culinary program in the Southeast United States now. Nice. Um, yeah, super cool. But I, so I'm all over the place. Um, until that moment. So I am from here in Charlotte. I went to high school in Virginia. My first sit in college was in Pennsylvania. Then I uh, came back home for like a year or two and then went out to Utah. And I was in Utah for a year. And it was when I came back to Charlotte was when I got into advertising. Got it. So I was in that whole world for like almost three years. Got it. Got it. Uh, So I got to know, dude, what does power, the song 
power by Kanye West look like on a plate? So that's a great question because it's changed multiple times. First, yeah. Can you like give us like the beat of power in case anybody can't? <laughs> like, which one is that? I think oh I, my gosh. I, think I, can I am not it. a karaoke guy. Um, <laughs> do you know the beat? It's so it's where he has kind of in the background. It's like the drumsticks hitting on the side of the drum, making that clicking noise. I think I'm confusing power with monster. Yeah, no. So monster we did. So we actually ended up doing a album tribute dinner to that album a year after we opened. And that monster, the dish that we did for monster was the most loved dish at counter 1.0. So we did a greatest hits menu and that was a number one asked for dish because we did a uh fried rabbit leg in a ton of different like chilies and it was just wild I'm like Kanye west don't don't sue me i'm playing it but what's interesting is when i first had that idea and listened to that song i took it in a very like lyrical basis like what can i do with the lyrics of this song and then it kind of just evolved and evolved. And then all of a sudden, when we did the new dish to this song, it was about, okay, where, like, what does the bass translate to in the savoriness of the food? What does that clicking of the drumstick on the side of the drum represent when it comes to acidity and salinity? What is the texture of this song? And that's something that I just fell in love with is texture mm. because texture is something that you can't physically feel in music, but you know, it's there. Right. And then with food, it is very difficult to make a dish that tastes fantastic is well-balanced and also has a complexity of texture. Mm. And so texture became, became this thing that I just became obsessed with and I knew that this had to be a focus of how I cooked and the food that we put together because it's a great representation of how music operates as well. So from there you get this inspiration. Yes. And you say, I'm not going to go to like, I'm not going to like CIA. I don't want to get in debt. I want to go back home. I want to do the smart. Correct. Uh, and like, take it from there. What, what, what are you doing? What's the first step after culinary school? So or during culinary school, I should say, well, the first step, was and so I am forever thankful for this specifically. I think a lot of uh young adults when they go into culinary school, they're not really sure what they want to do. They just know that they want to cook and they want to be in hospitality. Or even some of them they're like, I'm doing this because I couldn't get into the other things I wanted to do. But thankfully for me, I had a very single pointed centered view of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to take this education in my life. So the entire time from day one, what I've had in front of me was counter what ended up being the restaurant that we opened up. So I could spend those, you know, five and a half years leading up to opening up the restaurant, focus on what do I need to do today to get me closer to opening up that restaurant, which is incredibly fortunate. Yeah, the power of vision. Man. Yeah. It's super good stuff. Yeah. And so with that being said, I knew that I needed to go work at a place that, shared a similar vision or concept. So there was only one tasting menu restaurant in Charlotte at the time. It's no longer around, but I went and became a dishwasher there while working, um, at a, my, actually my mom's newspaper company in the morning so I can make enough money to survive. And then also in culinary school. So I had three full-time jobs 
um, all at one time. And then also on top of that, I was still married. And, you know, my now ex-wife, she went from me making, you know, like $200,000 in a year to making $8.13 an hour. Wow, it's crazy that you walked away from that, man. <laughs> well, you know what? It's like, I'm someone that when some when I get attached to something... Is this why you're no longer married? <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. And should laugh about that. But hey, you know, it ended up being great. I've got a, like the greatest partner ever now. Nice. Like, oh my gosh. Um, worth but, the whole yeah. uh, like six years, seven years of craziness um, just to find them. So, um, but anyway, um, you know, at that point there was, a, honestly, there was a lot of doubt. You know, there was, okay, was this worth giving up this incredibly awesome life where everything was looking great financially, you know, everything was looking great in every aspect of life. But now I just have this obsession that I've got to deal with. And, uh, thankfully from there, you know, I, when I was in culinary school and this is a huge thing that I tell everybody is like in every aspect of your life, find a mentor because not only can you have your single vision, you can have someone who's focused on assisting you and getting there. And then also (laughs) you can find, uh, eventually learn how to be a mentor too. And so I, you know, looked up the resumes and talked with all of the chef professors and instructors over at CPCC. And I found like my guy, I was like, this is the person that's going to teach me the most of what I want to learn. What appealed to you about this guy? First of all, he was obsessed with his craft. Like he was just zeroed in. Also, he was very creative and every single thing that he did, he would always and does like he's still around. Um, <laughs> everything that he does, he reapproaches it on a daily basis with a new mindset. He never thinks that anything is perfect. He always knows that improvement can always be made, which is a very humbling thing to do. And you ha- and it showcases that you have to take ego out of the situation mm-hmm. because your ego will always get in the way of you progressing forward. And uh, his name is Chef Rob Marilla. He is um, the director of culinary, um, and, and I think actually hospitality as well at uh, Central Piedmont Community College. Um, but he thankfully took me underneath his wing. And I think another really cool thing is we are so polar opposite outside of cooking. Oh, really? And I think that's some things that's that's a big thing that I think people need to also take into account is like the person who might teach you the most and show you the most in one aspect of life. You know, they might have completely opposite, like political, religious, whatever views from you, but that doesn't mean that their entire knowledge and wisdom is invalidated, Yeah, you know? So, um, but we're kind of, we were kind of an odd couple for a while. How old are you at this point in your life? So at that moment I was 26, 27. Got it. And I felt super far behind. I bet. And I was like, you know, I've got kids in here that are like 19, 20 years old. You know, they're way ahead of me. And I've got to make up ground for that. And I kept on thinking about like the 10,000 hour rule. Right. I was like, well, shit, I'm going to work three full-time gigs. So then that way I can get to that 10,000 hours three times faster. And like, by the time I'm 30, I'll make up for it. You big Malcolm Gladwell fan? Yeah, dude. Um, we got a lot in common. We oh, about a lot, dude. 110% man. So how, what, how did this mentor steer you? How, how did he influence what you did next? Or did he not? So greatly in every way. Um, and I think most importantly, he greatly influenced me in ways that I didn't expect. So he assisted me in getting into certain like culinary groups and culinary competitions, advising me on technique and things like that. But what I was not expecting that I actually learned from him the most was 
to how not necessarily fully balance things, but realize that it's not just about what you put on the plate and it's not just about finding the perfect recipe. There's also a whimsy about all of this. There's creativity. There's a love that's put into this. And it made me have more of a esoteric and emotional connection with what I was doing rather than being fully mental and like fully just focused on the X, Y, Z's of what was going on, um, which that definitely translated into how we operate here, where it's not just the recipes that we're giving our employees. It is about how this whole culture operates, mm. um, which is super important because that's, that is that's much more of a lasting impression yeah. than just giving someone a recipe. So in Charlotte, before going to Chicago, you worked at Heirloom, you worked at Myers Park County Club, you worked at Angeline's yeah. and uh, Haymaker. Yeah. Um, any one of these experiences pivotal or transformative for you? Um, when it came to cooking, um, honestly, not, not really. Okay. Um, but I had, the main thing is the people that I met in those places. So like one of my absolute best friends, um, Chris Randall, I met him when I was working at Angeline's. Um, today's actually, uh, the three year anniversary of him passing away. Um, sorry, but, um, he like super trans transformative person in my life. Um, but you know, also I met, um, chef Kendall Ross, um, at Angeline's and I met Ashley, who's actually our research and development director here at counter. Um, I met him while we were opening up Haymaker. He was the CDC there when we opened up. So I met all of these awesome people and made those connections and relationships there. But as far as like technique and the kind of food that we make at counter, I knew that I had to find a place that had that knowledge and had that creativity and had that focus that I was, I knew I needed to have in order to open up what it would eventually be counter. So you find yourself in Chicago. Yeah. Why Chicago? Dude, this is so stupid. (laughs) I, so it was, it was literally like a week maybe before Um, I separated from my ex-wife. I was super down in the dumps. I was circling through these places in Charlotte. I wasn't learning anything that I wanted to learn. I was like super depressed. Like, will this restaurant idea, will this concept ever even happen? Because I'm not learning what I want to learn. And so, you know, what do you do when you're a depressed millennial? You go get a tattoo, you know? And so um, it (laughs) it was also like, a couple weeks after Paul Bocuse passed away. Um, and so I got this tattoo of a, uh, black rooster cause he actually had a rooster tattooed on his arm. So I got a black rooster with a little chef toke, um, in honor of Paul Bocuse, but then kind of just in this like last minute decision, I decided to also get this tattoo over here because I had watched and became enamored with the chef's table of Grand Ackett's at Alinea. Is that the balloon? And this is the balloon. And I wasn't as impressed with Grant as I was with Mike Begale. And like following Chef Begale and seeing his boundless creativity. Like anything is possible with food in his mind. And I was like, I need to have that mindset. I need to have an understanding like he has an understanding of food. So I got this tattoo and I tag him on Instagram and he messages me and he's like, did you seriously get my tattooed on your fu- my, my food on tattooed on your fucking arm? I was like, yes, chef. And he goes, dude, that's crazy. You're insane. And I was like, 
uh, does this mean I get a stage? (laughs) (laughs) Moment of opportunity. And uh, he was like, hell yeah, man. And I freaked out. And so I went up and staged at Alenia. And, uh, I wonder what he was thinking. He was like, oh, I shouldn't have commented on that because I don't like, know what I'm getting. Damn. <laughs> like, this dude's a psychopath. But <laughs> I go up there, and usually when you stage at Lenny, it's a two-day stage, right? If you're lucky, um, if you make it past the first day. And so I made it very um, known to myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to stay at this restaurant until they either A, kick me out, or B, give me a job. Other than that, I'm going to be here for as long as they don't realize so I ended up being there for um, over a week, every single day, get there at 5 a.m. And then I would leave at usually around midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And then I think it was like six, six days or seven days into the stage, Chef Ackett goes up to Chef Simon, who's the executive chef at the time. And he goes, is that guy still on his stage? <laughs> And Chef Simon goes, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> and so literally immediately after that comment, Chef Simon pulls me aside and goes, Did you hear uh, this going down? Yeah, 110%. What are you thinking? What's going on? I was like, finally? fuck. I, like, I found out. Had. Yeah, I was like, they're about to kick me out. I was like, this is the moment. Like, let me soak it all in because I'm screwed now. <laughs> and so, because I was working on, um, hot food too. So like we were making this like potato chowder dish thing. Sorry. And, uh, and so I overheard them over at expo on the pass. And so chef Simon comes by and he's like, follow me. So I follow him and then I go to their office, which is in a building next to it, like in between them and, and, and Boca. I was like, Oh (laughs) fuck. And, um, and all I could think about is how I left my brand new, beautiful paring knife on canopy station. I was like, shit, if he kicks me out, I'm not gonna be able to get that knife. And so (laughs) (laughs) priorities. Right. And so he sits me down and he goes, um, so why are you here? And, such a simple question, you know, that just completely changes the way that you're viewing. It's like the whole reason I was there was to learn how and what they do, but I never thought about why. And so he was like, why are you here? And I said, you know, I want to learn, you know, this restaurant is so mind blowing to me and it's something that I want to be able to do for the guests in the future whenever I open up my own spot. And he goes, um, do you want a job? I'm like, hell yeah. Like what? Like I was so taken aback from that second question. Like I ended up, I'm not going to lie. I started weeping in front of Simon Davies. I was so excited. (laughs) And, um, you know, we talked a little bit more about, you know, the position and things like that. And the most, um, game changing comeback, honestly, that I've ever received in my life was when he goes, so when can you start working? And I said, well, you know, I need to finish school. Yeah. Well, I was like, I, you know, I need to finish school. That happens in December. So mind you, this is in October. And I was like, you know, that's in December. But if you need me now, I can make that happen. And he goes, he just looks at me down in the eye. He's like, we don't need you. We want you to be here. And if that means January, fantastic. If that means next week, fantastic. But you take care of that. And then come up here. And just like that, that element of 
yeah, they don't need me. Like, this is the best restaurant right. in the country. They don't need me at all. They got kids showing up, not leaving. They do. <laughs> and, you know, so it made me appreciate it much, much more. And I went back home and I finished up that semester. And then I went back up in January. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just wild. But it, it really did, brought me a new perspective. For did sure. he ever tell you why he wanted you? So, yeah. So the reason why... Uh, <laughs> The reason why he told me uh, that I would be a good fit um, was because I took criticism very well and I didn't get shaken easily. So um, I have never seen, and honestly, it is kind of a representation of a toxic culture in a way, but I have never heard or seen such incredibly deep digging, but very posh insults in my life (laughs) and criticism. And then, you know, I kind of have this idea of like eating the fish and leaving the bones. So like I would take that criticism, understand that this guy is not trying to, well, I mean, not all the time, just break me down. He's legitimately trying to get me to do better. So how can I learn from that and shape it? Um, Sometimes not in the most positive ways. I do think people confuse candor with, uh, you know, well, what's the the opposite or just being mean or whatever yeah you know like in yeah. that at that level at a linear when you're constantly at, among the top 50 best restaurants in the world yeah. you don't have time to yeah. baby and hold hand and yeah. like you 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 gotta say what you're thinking and, and you're not criticizing the person you're criticizing the process right right and you know we had 60 back of house staff when i was there that's wild you don't have you you literally don't have enough time in the day to have yeah. long drawn out conversations with everybody. Uh, yeah. I mean that, that also I think is important for people to understand. Like I think mm-hmm. a lot of times like you as a young chef, you're like, you're comparing everything you're doing to a place like Alinea. And yeah. I think people forget that Alinea, not everyone has the privilege to operate like Alinea does. Yeah. They don't have yeah. the resources yeah. to hire 60 people. And I think what gets people in trouble is they try to be like Alinea with like five people. Right. And, and we, the, and we tried to do that. Yeah. that. Like, that's the crazy thing is like when we first opened, I only had three staff yeah. and we were doing a menu. Our opening menu here at counter was 117 touches. Wow. And we were doing two services in a night and that was so not sustainable. Right. And that's the thing is we try to be like these people who are idols. And I just don't think unless you were in the kitchen staging and you see what it takes to deliver yeah. that, like just that's why ego is not there's no place for it because you yeah. can't compare yourself you can't let your ego get involved because we don't all have we're not all dealing with the same set of cards right, right? uh yeah, they make 23 million dollars a year yeah isn't that crazy chef akit uh akit akit yeah chef yeah. akit's um obviously didn't start there either right you know he he climbed the ladder too and you have to yeah. recognize that people get to these points over time and persistence mm-hmm. so you'll you could get there someday but you're not going to start there right you know so you went there to learn. Mm-hmm. What did you learn? What- so that is a great segue. Um, I learned a couple of things I had never realized, like I never would have in a million years, like thought that I was going to learn. So um, when I went up to Chicago, I went literally during the worst possible time of the calendar year. So I moved there in January, two weeks before the polar vortex um, that took place there, where it was negative 25 degrees but with wind chills, negative 60 Chicago in those two days was the coldest place on the earth. And, um, so, 
you know, my body was adjusting to all of this stuff. You know, I had just moved into a like new apartment and all this stuff. And there's just a lot of change going on. And, you know, along with, you know, working at Alinea and all those hours and the amount of intensity and honestly, like at all moments of your day, when you're working there, you're one piece from the train going off the rails. Like your prep list is so large and it has to be perfectly scheduled out throughout the day and it has to be executed perfectly. Like there's no, you know, right way and wrong way. You know, there's only perfect and that's all you're allowed to do. And so, you know, it was a very intense mental journey and physical journey because I didn't realize, you know, I had so much adrenaline pumping when I was dodging. I didn't realize that, oh man, I'm, I'm doing 20,000 steps a day and about 80 to 90 flights of stairs a day. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I was, as uh, one of the chefs there said, I was, you know, the biggest guy in the kitchen. And he said it a little bit, not as nice, but, um, so all of this adjustment was taking place. And then, you know, what happens at that point is you shut down. And because of that, um, I had a very intense physical and emotional and mental shutdown, um, as I was working there and I didn't realize, oh, it's not normal to not sleep for four to five days in a row. And here I am rolling in, like I only got three hours of sleep last night. And you're like, big deal, dude. dude <laughs> not healthy. Um, uh, but yeah, I would go, I mean, I would go two to three days at a time without sleeping. And then on my day off, I would just good. sleep all day. And, you know, I had a lot of, um, battles mentally and there's a lot of very terrifying thoughts that were going in through there. A lot of it about not being good enough, getting into this ask, game too late. Yeah. I was the, I was the oldest Comey on staff and I was 26 or 27, but there were guys that were like 19, 18, 21, like all this stuff. And they are beyond like miles beyond me. And, um, you know, there's a lot of insecurity as well. And so, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm doing a good job, but what I'm being told is from some people contrary to that, some people agreeing with that. So like I had a great relationship with my tournaments, my sous chefs and my executive chef I did not have a good relationship with my fellow comies on my station and my, my chef de parties on my station. And that's, you end up learning that that's just normal for Michelin environments. I mean, they're all trying to, you know, climb up the ladder and what by ever, like whatever means necessary. Right. So, um, what ended up happening is I'm on my way back home and I just black out and I then get a, like, I kind of just wake up from this blackout and all of a sudden I'm in a hospital. I'm in Ravenswood, Chicago. And were it, you jo- wait, where, where were you doing? What were you doing when you blacked out? You said you're on your way. So home. I was, I was in or the Fullerton, uh, red line stop. Okay. Um, for, uh, for the L for the train. And I just kind of like close my eyes and then I wake up and I'm in Ravenswood mental health hospital in the Damn. behavioral health hospital. And I like, it was weird. It was almost like, honestly, like a cut to an intro of a movie where they're like telling me to take all of the laces out of my shoes, take the drawstring out of my sweatpants, like 
all this stuff, like lining my hand down my jacket to make sure that there is no strings in there and, you know, all this craziness. And now I'm sitting in a waiting room for like three hours, just like in scrubs, like getting checked in all this stuff. Why would you make somebody, I'm not saying you are crazy, but there are, I'm sure people who are crazy who get in that scenario and you're going to make somebody who's already borderline crazy wait for three hours. That, that would alone would drive me crazy. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> sorry, I just well, no, just, I mean, I it, it's true, and you know, the thing is that it's when you push someone to their absolute limit that situations like that take place. Do you mind me asking? So you black out? Yeah. Or did you, did you pass out, or were you just being so, a crazy person? Well, I find out while I'm getting checked in that I had apparently was either about to or did go onto the tracks um, of this train. And someone pulled me off and they were actually pissed at me that I was getting on the tracks because I was about to shut the train down and they couldn't get back home. But they assisted me with my phone to call an Uber to take me to that behavioral health hospital. And so I actually Ubered there um, and um, was dropped off there. So I was, I was awake and cognizant this entire time, but just like mentally just like spaced out. Um, but while I was in there, you know, the, uh, nurse that was there was like telling me about like what had taken place. If I have recollection of it, you know, why I was deciding to do this, doing all this paperwork, you know, going through everything. And I ended up spending 10 days in that, um, behavioral health hospital. And, at the beginning, it was like, oh, I totally just fucked up my entire life. Like, right. I let go. If you of, weren't stressed up before, right? What about now? Yeah. Right? I'm like, I've still got to pay my bills. I still, like, I just, well, because of this, I'm fired from my dream job. You know, is this idea of this restaurant over? You know, what the hell happens next? And while I was there, um, there was some incredible um, therapists and psychiatrists. And I finally, um, after years and years and years of battling with some of these things and thinking that they were normal, I found out that I was actually battling with some issues that I needed to address. So are you you able to talk? about? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we actually talked about it pretty openly, um, throughout this restaurant here. We actually had a whole, uh, series here about one element of it, which is bipolar disorder. So, um, I have uh, bipolar um, with massive depressive disorder and then also insomnia. So I initially, you know, as soon as my psychiatrist was going through all these things, I was like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, yeah, I checked that box. I checked that box. And I remember asking me, I was like, so people, this isn't normal. I was like, no, but also no one's normal. And I was like, okay, I like that. He's like, no one's normal. There's no such thing as crazy. It is okay. This is, this is just your battle. This is your walk in life. And this is something that thankfully you can work with. He was like, if someone loses both of their legs, right? That is, that's an intense, that's a very intense battle. That's, that's huge trauma. He was like, just think that you have like a broken arm or you've lost a leg and now you just got to figure out how to just go through life and find happiness through it. It's like just because aware, yeah, self-aware of what's actually happening helps you identify and get over. Yeah. Cause I was like, it seems like you've been walking around 
with like a broken leg for the yeah. past 26 years yeah, when you're missing and now leg. you at least are like oh 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 shit my leg's broken <laughs> <laughs> like when you, when something's going on internally it's harder to identify that when your leg is missing you can clearly see oh I'm, I go to take a step and there's nothing there yeah. to, to catch me. You know? Yeah. And so it's a little more obvious <laughs> and like, you know, the things I was learning in that just like it made, it made so much sense. And he was like, you know, the vast majority, not just like a portion, the vast majority of the hospitality industry has clinical depression. The reason being is like, it is honestly a way that a lot of people cope with their depression to work with people and find happiness through other people on a daily basis through their job. And I was like, that makes so much sense. And he goes, you know, sometimes depression is like having a rabid dog chained to your neck. Like sometimes it'll sit and sometimes it'll be fine. But most of the time it's like running off, going this way, running off, going this way, going crazy. And he was like, it's kind of the same way as the hospitality operates. Mm. You know, how hospitality industry operates is like, you know, there's calm and then there's control chaos. And then sometimes the chaos is out of control, but then you remember we close at 10. Yeah. (laughs) No matter what we close (laughs) at 10. Five more minutes. And, um, so it was just, it was a huge awakening moment for me. And I had a notebook, um, that was writing down like just notes throughout the entire time that I was there. And, I knew that I had to figure out a way to think about and work with this and make it be reflective in what would end up being counter. And that was when I made the decision. I want counter to be a fine dining restaurant. That is the exact opposite experience of what I just went through so that no one goes through what I just went through or worse, go through what I went through and not have the outcome that I had. Yeah. And you know, this is when I say the restaurant unstoppable's mission is to inspire, empower and transform the the industry. This is the transformative part. It's just like what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And and how can we do it better? And how can we start sharing like the realities? I think for the longest time the these these publications of the world, the food and wines, the the Michelin guide, the all these things that like steer our industry. Let's be honest, they influence us. We yeah. all want to get those awards. 100%. We all want to get that recognition. And we and they are telling this narrative and they they paint this picture of like the perfect things, right? But that's the consumer perspective. Right. We're not sharing the realities of everything that goes on to make this happen. And I, and that's one of the reasons why I, I try to steer away from publicists because I feel like publicists mm-hmm. paint this like the, the media paints this false reality. Right. And I think that the 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 industry worker needs a different perspective. They need they, they need to see the inside. They need to, they need the real story behind the facade. Right. Correct. And I think it's important that we share this stuff so we can consciously become collectively aware mm-hmm. and say, well, how do we do better? You know, we're, we're not doing ourselves any favors by continuing like this. Right. So, and that's honestly the number one reason that we moved to Charlotte. So I didn't want a Michelin guide breathing down my neck while I opened up a restaurant. I didn't want to worry about, you know, all these crazy, insane, like critics and stuff like that. I just wanted to create an experience that I felt fulfilled on a daily basis. And I felt like I was making a positive change. And what's funny is that now, especially with all this stuff going on with like James Beard and stuff, we have people saying, Oh, you know, what's next? Are you going to like get Charlotte's first Michelin star? It's like, no, like that's not how that works. And 
the whole point of it being here was not just because it's my hometown and, you know, I want to showcase because one of our biggest elements is showcasing the agricultural and farming diversity that you can find in the Carolinas. It's like, not only do I have an incredible bounty around me, but I don't have to worry about that crazy mess that normally is in a big city. And so, you know, it, the vision, you know, when you're at a Michelin star restaurant, things like that, most of the time, the vision of earning those stars or pushing those boundaries and things like that are at the top of the pyramid. And everyone that's actually making things operate on a daily basis, they're either there for a job, they're there to learn. But at the end of the day, if like, like if a linear went from three stars to two stars, 90% of the people that work at that restaurant, I'm not saying they wouldn't care. They're loyal to the star. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for yeah, sure. That's, that's the priority. And yeah. let's be honest. The, the reason why people are working there is because having that on your resume will open doors. Unless you're in Chicago. Yeah. Cause that's like that. What's so funny is like, if you work at Alinea and then you leave and you go work somewhere else in Chicago, you never put Alinea on your resume. Why is that? Cause no one wants to hire someone from Alinea because they've got such a drastically different mindset. Like, because they don't want to bring in someone that's going to start like yelling at their other employees and having and that, trying to implement all of those things in that restaurant. They want to be different. And because there was a time period where what was being created at that restaurant was very toxic and they didn't want to bring that toxicity into their restaurant. Mm. So there was a while that when I was applying to jobs in Chicago afterwards, I didn't put on my resume that I worked there. Um, also at the end of the day, like I feel like you need to work at a place long enough um, to put it on your resume. So, you know, for me, there's a couple of restaurants I worked at in Chicago that are great restaurants, but I would never put them on my resume cause I didn't work there long enough. Right. And How long were you at Alinea? So I was at Alinea for all like almost four months, which is actually like veteran status. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling them earlier today, it's like how you knew how long someone had been there. Um, was what step they were on in the stairwell leading into the kitchen from the crawl space. Because when you're a Comey at the end of your shift around like seven ish, you would come into the kitchen, shake hands with the sous chefs and the chef, and then you would leave and you would be lined up in the tenure that you were there. And so obviously I started right at the front, like right at the door, you know, right at the front. But by the time I left, I was almost near the bottom and I was only there for that's just wild. a few months. Yeah. I mean, I saw so many people get chewed up and spit out like just in the time that I was there. Um, but their revolving door is, I mean, it's just flying through. That's, that's wild. And I think they honestly, like I want to make sure that they get some proper, um, you know, positive as well as that you can tell that the employee culture has become a focus uh, maybe even the biggest focus of them over the past couple of years, uh, frankly, since COVID, and what has now happened is that not only the employees happier and you can see that the culture is stronger, but because of that, and I think it, it's not just by proxy. I think it's fully because of this. I am hearing so much better feedback about the food, the experience and just the overall feel of that restaurant. Yeah. Now I am curious when you did ha have to check yourself in mm -hmm. what happened with Alinea after. So apparently, <laughs> apparently before I stepped on the tracks, I texted my co-comies 
saying, Hey, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be in tomorrow. And this is my prep list. I'm so, so sorry. And then yeah, you don't do that. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you don't do that. Um, but what ended up taking place is like, I've got to give so much props to the Alinea group because I was reached out to by every main figure that you would think um, would reach out to you and more, but they immediately, they didn't care about me missing like my prep list. Like I thought they would, they genuinely wanted to make sure that I was okay. Yeah. Cause they know that this, this doesn't happen. Especially the thing that they admired about you was that you showed up. Yeah. You, it was uncharacteristic for you to do something like this. Yeah. Uh, I'm loving the conversation. I, I do, we do have to push things mm-hmm. forward because you okay. still, um, there was one more stop before coming back to, to Charlotte. So I, there is a few. Well, um, I mean, the one that I know about is the Japanese restaurant. Is there, is it worth hovering over here? Or is yeah. It just- so, I mean, no, that's definitely worth it. You know, that's, that's actually a spot that I didn't really put on my um, resume because frankly, that was the only place ever that I walked out. <laughs> um, and that was also another place that was very structural in, you know, the cultural development of this restaurant. Yeah. I mean, I'm cool but, with yeah. talking about your past because you've only been yeah. a, a owner for two years. Three years. Uh, yeah, two and a half years. Yeah. Two and a half years. So yeah. we don't have much to cover here, at the, here yeah. after. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, I worked at um, Momotaro. Um, how I found out about it was actually the chef there, uh, Gene. He is like, he grew up here in Charlotte. He went to Central Piedmont Community College. I actually met him when I was in culinary school. And he was the first person to take me to like Chinatown in Chicago, where I absolutely fell in love with that area of Chicago. Would spend multiple, like, I would go there multiple days every single week. And, um, you know, I, I learned a lot, um, when I was working there, but one of the biggest things I learned is, um, and chef Gene even mentioned it. And he was like, you know, with some of the people who are on staff, you're going to learn the right way to lead. and You're going to learn the wrong uh, way to lead. And it's up to you to, you know, really figure out who you want to be in the future as a chef. Cause he knew that my eventual goal was to open up my own spot. He was like, you need to learn this. And he was like, you also, you know, you can't fight every single battle but you can learn from everything that's taking place. And unfortunately, like I, I was all, you know, this is also right after I left the hospital, you know, while I'm going through all this stuff, dealing with like, you know, what happens when you begin medications and things like that. And when I started to see even the first like little snippet of me potentially going back to the mental state that I was before, I was like, yeah, no, this is, this is not going to happen. But what was so cool is that, during that time in the mornings, I was working at a place called a kid's table where I was teaching kids how to cook from ages three to 13 years old. That's cool. And such a pivotal time in a childhood development for real. And I tell you what, if this, if that generation of kids I was teaching, iGen or alpha, whatever you want to call them, if that is an indication of where not only this country, but the world is going towards, I am all about it. Like they're the coolest kids ever. Think about the exposure they have. Yeah. Think about like, we talk about this word unprecedented. gets tossed around. Like Mm -hmm. it's no one's business, but it's truly like, and you think about the next generation, like a kid can literally, if you know how to read and write, which most people Mm -hmm. do know how to do by the age of six, seven or eight, you know, like you can freaking tap into the world. Yeah. That's crazy. But what what is so funny is that every generation wants to try to be like the opposite of the previous one or be the antithesis to it in some way. So like that's why you had the baby boomer boomers and then like you had the hippie gen- generation like a little bit past 
like the majority of the baby boomers boomers that were like, we are not going to get into wars. We're going to be peaceful. But then also you had the next generation that's like, well, we're going to be hardworking. We're not going to be lazy. And then the next generation was, you know, we're going to be very welcoming and we're going to be very like, um, you know, this is where the whole participation trophy bullshit comes into play, but we're going to be very innovative, very focused on like creating a new world. And then this generation, they just saw all of those generations battling with each other and just being angsty and so against one another. And what I love so much about this generation of kids is their number one goal is to create connections and weave their lives with each other. And most of the time, I mean, because nothing is a perfect um, situation, but you see so many more kids than when I was growing up care about one another and try and make each individual person successful and individual, yeah. which is like really cool. Well, we're think, like for the first time ever, we're teaching elementary school kids how to meditate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we're yeah. starting to like, we're so privy this like right now of just like what we're learning about the, the mind and how it works. And yeah. once you get control over that, it's like the rest well, it's of everything. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm loving the conversation. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60 day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60 day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Watching the menu too much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> People ask us every single service, have we watched that menu? Have, have we watched the menu? Have you not watched no, it? I Bro, it is so good. <laughs> is it good? So sometimes it's weird because it's so um, good, man. I don't, I don't like to watch. I, although I will say it's getting better, but for the longest time, anything that was in like Hollywood that was representative mm-hmm. of the restaurant industry was just hard to watch because it wasn't accurate. I but, agree, yeah. and um, the bear was good. The bear is fantastic. Yeah, and what's so cool about the menu is that it's very obvious that. These are all 
chefs that came together and someone was the scribe and they were talking about their craziest guests, the craziest moments, and then also in the deepest, darkest part of their mind, what they think about doing when they have a shitty guest. Right. And it's priceless. It is absolutely priceless. There's another one that's out there right now called, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the, the it's Netflix and it's this uh, Thai woman who's a street chef. And then she like wants to like cook for like essentially like the Thai's version of like a linea. Right. Oh shit. Um, I didn't watch it. She gets into it and she basically realizes that it's all a load of shit and that you're not like what you think it is, is a bunch of big egos competing. Yeah. And it's also like, it's actually, they did a phenomenal job because at the very end, it's all about, she realized that I was at my happiest when I was cooking for my family restaurant with people I love. Yeah. And that the game of running, like being like at that level of that Michelin star level, it's all about maintaining the star and it's all about maintaining the public image. Mm-hmm. And that's the secret. It's who thinks I'm sexy. And as long yeah. as you're relevant and sexy, people want to go, it's all psychographics, dude. And that's part of the issue. It's like 110%. And, and it's in, in the media doesn't fucking help either. And like, yeah. but we're, but we are all blinded by the glitz and the glam and the, what the, the consumer facing the perspective and i think you'll agree with me on this the worst so it started off as one of the best things we never we didn't officially come back but jared if you haven't figured it out just just edit this from the part where we start talking about the menu Uh, but um the worst and best thing to ever happen to chefs is instagram because now everyone knows what everyone does also Everyone knows if you're ripping off another yeah. very instantly. But I, think, I think that's but, human nature to rip off inspiration. Right, that, that's right. what we do. So I also don't but you have to give you have to give proper credit when proper yeah, credit recognize where the inspiration came. So from. like we did a menu called Covers where we point blank you know gave the credit to who created these dishes, but also gave proper credit to dishes that didn't receive that proper credit before. And so you know one thing that really bothered me when I was working in, you know, Michelin environment was no one cared about how things tasted. People just cared about how it looked and the technique and the innovation. And so people get freaked out sometimes when they stage here and they realize, Oh, they don't sous vide their meat. No, they make actual pan sauces. Yes. Do we have a bunch of like molds and frilly stuff? Yeah. But only when it makes sense, you know? And so we don't really care about all the different colors on the plate. Yeah. We care about the flavor, but you know, it just makes it a little bit more interesting when you have people that are just focusing on that mindset that come in here and dine because they almost feel like, Oh, well this isn't of, you know, when they have the plate in front of them, Oh, well this isn't of the level of X, Y, Z Michelin star restaurant that I went to in New York. But then when they eat it, they're like, Oh my God, like this tastes great. Right. And that's what matters. But right. going back, quickly going back to the covers menu, one of my favorite things ever is to have specifically straight white men coming to this restaurant that I've worked at Michelin star restaurants. Um, we had one like two weeks ago. He uh, was actually a sous chef at a three Michelin star restaurant out in California. I'll let you figure out which one that is. It should be obvious if I'm talking about straight white men. But anyway, he is talking about Paul Bacuse. Paul Bacuse one of the greatest chefs of all time. But he's talking about a dish that Paul Bacuse became famous for, which is the Rossini, the um, Tornados de Beef. So it's like you have the filet, and then it's on top of the brioche, and then it's got the fluted mushroom and foie and all that stuff. I said, do you know who originally made that dish? 
And he goes, Pava Kusa. I said, no. I said, the first person to make that dish, like a version of that dish that then was spun off, was the very first person to get three Michelin stars. I said, do you know who got the first set of three Michelin stars? And he goes, no, I actually don't. Do you know? No, I don't. Like, no one knows. Yeah. And I was like, first person to get three Michelin stars, and they actually received a second set of three Michelin stars a few years later for another restaurant that no one else was able to do for 40 years? Her name was Eugenie Brazier. Oh, really? It was a woman. But no one talks about her. And I think it's because of that, because we got such into a toxic masculinity culture in cooking, and we had, unfortunately, chefs that got very publicly famous that were super misogynistic that kind of pushed that history aside. Hmm. And uh, so it was, it's always really fun to see reactions to them learning that. And how Eugenie Brazier was actually Paul Bacuse's mentor. Like really? the person that everyone thinks is the greatest chef of all time. His mentor was really a boss ass bitch. She's the greatest chef of That's all time. Awesome. She's still kicking around. She is not. Awesome. Uh, she passed away, I believe Just, like uh, it was a few decades ago. I mean, she, uh, but I mean, yeah. How long has the mission star even been around like since 1934? Oh, Jesus. I'm so fucking off. Sorry. Never mind. Um, <laughs> she got her three stars in 36. Or I don't really get caught up in the Michelin thing. Cause I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's like, it's a part of the industry. I just don't like, you know what I mean? It's, I don't know why I feel that way, but I just, I don't know. Like who is anybody to say, even like the list of top 50 top who, who can say that one restaurant's better than the other. I agree. I do. So to I will it's, say it's this. Preposterous. I love dining at Michelin star restaurants. Yeah. I specifically love dining at one and two Michelin star restaurants. Um, not only because they're usually they're not in the hunt to try and get three, but especially two Michelin star restaurants. I will go to the grave by saying two Michelin star restaurants are the best restaurants in the world because they're the ones that don't care about doing all the additional frilly bullshit with the other elements of Michelin starred service and all that crap. What they care about is creating something unique, creative, and then also on top of that delicious. That's what they care about. Mm -hmm. And so like the best restaurants flavor wise I've ever been to places like parachute, uh, schwa, uh, jaunt, you know, uh, Aquavit for a while. I think they were really trying to get three stars, but chef Emma, it's so obvious that she's like, I'm going to make delicious food from where I'm from and really knock the doors off of everything. It's just really cool. I'm loving the conversation, but I want to bring it back to your story, oh, man. Yeah. And no, you're great, man. <laughs> Lots of tangents today. Yeah. Um, so you come back to Charles or not Charles. I was just in Charles. I'm sorry. You come back to Charlotte. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, where do you start? So, um, we did pop-ups. Yes. I love pop-ups. We Why did pop-ups. Well, it's a way to test out a theory, yep. right? I think chefs need to have more of a scientific approach to their concepts, you know? So we tested out a theory, see if it was valid. Um, we did pop-ups. Thankfully they were selling out, you know, it was doing really, really well. And honestly, I wanted to lead off with pop-up dishes that were at the outer extreme of what I wanted to do at the restaurant. So I was doing dishes where you had to like eat something off of a magnifying glass. That was then, you know, the ability like that gave you the ability to read this super hot, like super fine print menu that had been sitting in front of you the entire time. And like, we also made fun of three Michelin star restaurants by having these gigantic ass, like 16 inch plates that only had three bites of lobster <laughs> on it. Like just to have fun with it and just to see the reaction of people. It was kind of like a social experiment at that point. And when it did well and we got some really great write-ups, um, you know, then we're like, okay, this theory 
is valid and we can go something we can go along with it did the cons- was this over the consumer's head though was it so was it do you think that it was it's like you have to know to know yes right? and no yes and no because like you have so many transplants here in charlotte so when i was born in charlotte there's 300,000 people in the metrolina area so our dma now there's almost 3 million Wow. So we've increased by 10 times yeah. Pandemic in 30 years. Yeah. yeah. And um, so when we were having these pop-ups, the vast majority were not Charlatans, but they were from New York. They were from Chicago. They were from California and they had experience with these kinds of restaurants and they missed it. Right. Um, and so we got some of that and then everything was building up super, super well. You know, we were in February of 2020, you know, we were looking at spaces, we were getting things rolling and then COVID happened. And at that point, frankly, I thought the restaurant was dead at that point. So I went to counter counter. Yeah. So at that point I was like, okay, I want to go help um, my friend open up this restaurant in Chicago. Um, and I'm going to work there for a while and then reapproach this maybe in like two or three years. And really like the day after I completely given up hope on counters. So this is in May of 2020, right in the middle of the no, April, sorry, of 2020. So right when everything was hitting the fan, um, we got a call from the city kitchen, which is a commissary kitchen that counter 1.0 was originally at a little 1300 square foot space. And they said, hey, we are opening up this restaurant piece of our commissary kitchen. And I know that you were doing pop-ups. This could be a way that you get in with a very little amount of money and see if your concept's valid. Yeah. So I know, as a chef, I know it's so hard not to focus on the business side and to focus on mm-hmm. the food, the story of the food. Mm-hmm. But from a business perspective, what did you learn about how to execute a pop-up and the strategy? What strategy were you using to get the word out about your pop-up? Mm-hmm. Is like what, like, how do we best approach getting involved? I love the idea of pop ups because little overhead, it's networking. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, you're building your digital brand. You're, you're like, you know, you're getting like on, on, like, I think you you can do that so easily today without Mm -hmm. opening a restaurant. So, like, take us through like what the best practice or things you did or things you might have done better knowing what you know now. So, thankfully, my like advertising and marketing lizard brain like came out a little bit. So, I was reaching out to influencers, I was reaching out to media outlets. You know, giving away a couple tickets, but you also don't want to give away so much money that you don't make money. You know, that's one big thing that. So, who are you giving the tickets out to? So, I was giving tickets out to um, like influencers like Scallion Pancake, who also do like reviews of pop ups and restaurants. I was reaching out to Charlotte Observer, um, Charlotte Five, like Axios, people who were, had a large imprint on the community. And then also, at the end of the day, I think a lot of pop ups lose sight of this. Your goal, usually, of a pop up is to find the people that will fund your restaurant. So what I did is every single time someone paid for their bill and they had a metal Amex or they had a high-end credit card, I was like, cool, I'm going to remember your email and your phone number. I'm going to reach out to you about the next pop-up. And in between that time, we're going to talk business. We're going to talk shop. Yeah. Um, this has been a huge lesson for me too. It's just like (laughs) treat every guest as if they're a future investor. Yeah. Because they for could sure. very well be. And they could be, for yeah. sure. I mean, we're trying... One of our biggest... Actually, our biggest goal right now is our Chef de Cuisine young one. We're trying to get him funding for his restaurant because it's time for him to like fly the nest. But um, we ended up opening up Counter 1.0 on $25,000. Wow. Which is nothing. Where did the majority of that go? So we thankfully built into our lease 
had all the equipment. So all that money went into our initial wine inventory, food inventory, and initial payroll. So that's where product, all that went. Labor, yeah. Basically. And uh, thankfully, through the pop-ups, we were it's also... amazing how fast you can burn through $25,000. Dude, <laughs> it's stupid. Like now at this restaurant, you can't do anything for less than five grand. So you basically, this was just your, your operating cost to get yeah. started. Yeah. And this is the kind of the final, okay, we're going to see if this works. And if it does, then it'll be successful. And... You know, people say, oh man, you opened up a restaurant during the pandemic. That had been so difficult. It's like, it was the best time ever to open up a restaurant. Hopefully there's not more opportunities like this, but <laughs> what made it the best? Yeah, it made it the best because if it can survive through that, you know that that concept is going to survive yeah. through anything. Right. Also, everyone like this, I mean, yes, this is super sad. Everyone had just gotten laid off and I was there hiring people and also not just hiring people, but I really despise how the average job posting for line cooks was 11 or $12 an hour in Charlotte when we first opened up counter. And so when I was saying, okay, I'll bring you in for 16, 17, $18 an hour with additional gratuity, you know, now our lowest paid person makes around 25, $26 an hour. But like people are like, how in the hell is this guy opening up a restaurant now paying people this much? So we had, the best pick of anyone that we wanted to come work at this restaurant. Because people were just waiting to get back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how were you paying people though? Like where was the money coming from? Were you- our, so our overhead was super low. Yeah. So, so you just um, paid it forward. Well, we like, we were profitable week two. Yeah. Um, we paid off that $25,000 almost immediately. Um, but even only feeding like 60 to 80 people a week, we were profitable. And the other thing is, is that like, you know, a lot of restaurants are like, well, I can't pay my people that much because I got to have this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. And to me, I'm like, you haven't earned the right to have that many people work for you if you can't pay that many people a livable wage. Right. So for me, I had to deal with the fact that I hadn't earned the opportunity to have six, seven people on staff. I still had to wake up at 7 a.m. and go grocery shopping. I still had to fully break down and, and deep clean everything until 1 a.m. You know, we, we had to do that because we didn't earn those additional employees yet. So when business got faster, our, pre, our first chef de cuisine, Eileen, uh, was like, we can hire minions now. And that's when we got CDPs and commies and porters. Like, we didn't have a dishwasher the first you know, year and a half that we were open. And we were hand washing everything. Yeah. Um, I was running the wine program for the first year and a half. So I was doing that narrating service and plating. And we finally were able to afford to get a sommelier. So like it's a part of, you know, just building up and surviving. So this, this commissary you're working on, what was Would you call it a commissary or was... So it was commissary in the back. Okay. So we had 30 different businesses operating behind us. And then we had our standalone restaurant. Got it. Um, what, happened to make you want to leave so you were doing that for two years were you what mm-hmm. days were you working was it every day was so it was tuesday through saturday tuesday through saturday. um did you already say that and i missed it no right. you're good um but we knew that that was our first location we knew that it was temporary um and we from i think like three months in we we're like okay we need to start finding our permanent location and we had two spots that we initially were looking at and even paid for architectural plans for, and they fell through. And then we found this spot, um, which is right around the corner from where our first restaurant was. And with that, we knew that it was going to cost a whole lot more money. Like <laughs> it's not going to be $25,000. Mostly on rent. Um, not just on rent, but 
building everything. I mean, we no longer had the equipment looped into the lease. We had to, this is a cold shell. Like we okay. had to build the walls. We had to do the plumbing. We had to do the electrical. We had to put in the HVAC, well, put curious, vents, everything like that. You, this is, we're sitting in the sister restaurant right now. This yeah. isn't counter. Right. But it's essentially like on the other side of that wall. Yeah. There's no like, it's it's not closed off. There's a way. Right. It's it's not, well, how do I say it? It's adjacent. You yeah. Know, there's literally one wall separating two yeah. restaurants. Um, do you own this too? Yeah. Okay. I was yeah. curious if it was like if you're sharing the space or. No. So this is. So sister so restaurant is how it was pitched. We Yeah. So we like to say that this is the left lobe. So Biblio, it's the exact opposite restaurant. You buy a bottle of wine here and then we make a a la minute tasting menu to go along with it. We call it the blind. So, and it has its own executive chef, John Cruz, um, all that stuff. But we like to say that Biblio is the left lobe of the same brain as the right lobe of counter. And they work together. We share a walk-in. We, we only had to buy one hood um, that dis, uh, disperses over both cooktops. And they, it's not seamless by any stretch of the imagination, but they work together. So what's the, well, why this approach? Why not just make this whole space counter? <laughs> um, frankly, we knew that we were going to have a lot of wine storage and we wanted to monetize it. And then we became aware of that and like, okay, how can we make Biblio just as unique of a dining destination? And how can we make this really cool while having this additional space? And so, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of how things came to be. You know, we thought for about six, seven months about how we can make a wine bar cool and fit with the aesthetic and feel of the restaurant that we wanted it to be. And, you know, then it, it kind of spurred out of a, uh, a, uh, um, Anthony Bourdain, um, episode when he was in, he was somewhere in Spain and he went into a wine bar where he bought a glass of wine and then they just started giving him food. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Why does no one do that? And then I found out, no, that's that is what tapas is. That's that's legitimately what that is supposed to be. Like you're not supposed to be buying tapas. It's like that's how it operates. So we wanted to create kind of a fine dining version of that by creating this all minute tasting menu that went with the wine that you bought. Got it. Yeah. Uh at first, I was thinking maybe this is kind of because I know you guys look at yourself. Maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead, but you look at yourself as an incubator. So I was like, maybe right. this is where they it's like a stepping stone to like get people from like, Hey, you come in, you're working at counter, you have a concept, you can test that concept here and go on and do your own thing. But I guess I was wrong. Well, I tell you what, my friend breaking news. That's what our third concept is. Okay. Well, before we get to there, um, cause I am interested in that. Um, how'd you get the money to do this? So, um, we saved up a lot of money. Um, when I say this, I'm talking about uh, counter and biblio. Yeah. Biblio. Am I saying that? Yeah, correctly? Biblio. I'm afraid to say it. I'm dyslexic. So when words that, that look like they're like they mirror like uh, symmetrical words. Yeah. You know, oh, like, it's, which, it's rough. Huh? Um, um, thank you. But yeah, so we got um, what's called TI. So uh, tenant improvement allowance from the landlords. So they put in around 500 grand into um, getting this spot fixed up for us. Then we put in a few hundred thousand that we had saved up at counter 1.0. All those heavy MasterCards. Bro. <laughs> and then we reach out to potential investors. And then thankfully we had two uh, silent investors that purchased a little bit of equity in the company and then and then gave us um, the rest, the remaining amount to open up the restaurant. But How do you determine what equity you're willing to give up? You do an evaluation. Um, so once again, chefs... Do, 
they don't see restaurants as legitimate businesses. So there's something called EBITDA, which is your true evaluation of your business. And it looks at what your net revenue, sorry, your net income is versus your gross revenue, all of your expenses, everything like that, your variable and fixed costs. And it's like, okay, this is how much this business is worth. Because at the end of the day, a business that does $20 million in revenue, but only nets a hundred thousand is doing just as good as a $1 million restaurant that has a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's gross, all they care it's about. about yeah, it's what you put in the bank account. Yeah. Right. So, um, based on, based upon that evaluation, we're like, okay, this is how much it costs per percentage point, And they bought 10%. Yeah. And this is, I think the best. And I was actually just talking to uptown social, mm-hmm. uh, and Charleston. I don't know if you're familiar with Charleston's food scene or it's oh, more yeah. of a late night bar scene, what they got yeah. going on over there. But, uh, I think this is the future is giving up points to, key players in your team mm-hmm. um, because I don't see how you can be competitive in today's market without bringing people on who have skin in the game because yeah. there's just so many restaurants now well, uh, for so long chefs and restaurant tours didn't want their employees to know how things functioned because it was a way to hide oh this is like I can only pay you this much but then when you open up the finances they're like wait a second yeah and like that's, you know, so every single one of our employees from our executive chef to our dishwasher, I will show them the bank account balance. I will show them the completely brought out spreadsheet of yeah. our numbers. There's a term for this. You know what it is? What? Open book management. Open book management. Yeah. We do open book management. Yeah. Do it. It's fantastic. It's huge because now you're, you're not just, you're, you're creating mini owners, right? right? So now everyone knows how it works. So if a, a, a plate breaks they know oh shoot that and especially if they're take if you're sharing the profit like i just lost money so now people start seeing the business differently and the other variable is now they know that if they have an an opportunity or a perspective that might help increase revenue or profit you bring that to the table we all win and on top of that you know you brought up the whole incubator concept we have a rule of one to three years. We want you to be here for a year. So you see how seasons change in this restaurant, but we don't want you here longer than three years. Cause my goal is to teach you as much as I can to get you to your next step of your career. That's what it's all about. Yeah. So with that being said, you know, the focus is, okay, you want to end up opening up your own restaurant. You want to own that restaurant, right? So with that being said, what is the point of you being here in counter? What can I teach you? How can we work together? And so what's really cool is that every single person that works in either one of these restaurants knows what every other person's goal is here and outside of here, because no one's dream goal in life is to go be the chef de partie at counter, right? Your dream goal is to open up your own restaurant or whatever it may be. So how can we assist in being the best stepping stone to get to that next part of your life? Yeah. Uh, and honestly, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. It's not about you and your growth. It's about if you, if you flip it and you say, how can I get you to where you're trying to go? Mm-hmm. And if you make it about other people, what ends up happening? And if you know what their incentives are and their motives are, then what ends up happening is you, you can be that opportunity for them. If they're worth it and you're the one making like the, the biggest, you know, you have the, the the most points in the company and you can invest yourself, invest in the people that you've already, yeah. that you've already injected a culture into, you know, that share your values, you know, and that, you know, that they're going to go open a restaurant. You might as well benefit from it. Right. <laughs> like you right. might as well create a win-win situation. Right. And yeah. that's maybe the selfish way of thinking about it, but it's, it's a win-win, 
You it know, is. like let's go further together. Mm-hmm. Um, so with 2.0, was there anything that you did differently after learning about, you know, what you could have, like you kind of had a blank slate and you could be more intentional with this space. So yeah. how did you do things differently to be better? So a lot of it was doing things the way that we initially wanted to do it. So we wanted to have, we didn't want, any walls between the kitchen and the dining room. So at counter, you see everything that's going on, the cookery, the cookery, the plating, literally everything. So that was the biggest goal of it. Then we wanted to give ourselves the space, the equipment and the organizational setup to where we can achieve a higher level of food. So we got some cooler toys. We got better cooking equipment, more refrigeration, all of that stuff. Then we also wanted to improve on our sound equipment and the acoustics of the space. Big part of your concept. Huge part of our concept. So we wanted to work on that. And then we also wanted to work on lighting. We we just wanted to create a better space. And what's funny is that during no point of any of the conversations about building this place out, was there ever the guest brought up? Like that is our dead last priority. Because we know if we're taking care of our employees, telling a story that's worthy of being told, focus on local ingredients, so on and so forth, the guests will take care of themselves. They'll have a good time. And so the other thing on top of it is that we wanted to create a space that it was very easy for our employees to go back and forth between the two concepts and each time have an incremental increase on the ladder of not just position, but knowledge. And with that, you know, really be able to uh, grow themselves, grow this restaurant as well, but really figure out a way, okay, how can we grow you to be at your next step? Yeah. And that's, it's much more feasible in this physical location too. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you did mention that there's a third restaurant on yeah, the horizon. Yeah. What's the, what's the vision there? So I can't say where it's at, but meaning uh, physically where it is, where I can't okay. say where it's physically at yet. Um, but our third restaurant is called Preface, and Preface is the next step for an employee here. So that's where we are going to take applications, not just from um, our employees here, but also from outside of Charlotte, of chefs that have a concept that they're super strong in ability and leadership, and they have a concept, but they don't know the next steps. They don't know the business side of things. They don't know how to run it. They haven't been given an opportunity. And so it is a restaurant that's going to change concept with its chef every single year. And the menu will obviously change along with that. So it kind of sounds like uh, the Kakanis and Alinea group next, but with a person in a way and not like a a better example is if you've ever heard of the restaurant called understory in Oakland. No. Um, So definitely check it out. It's an employee owned um, restaurant where they focus on, um, really unique uh, people. And I think that's the key thing is they focus on really cool people yeah. and promoting them. It's one of the keys of this podcast. It's not about the restaurants. It's about the people behind the restaurants. Exactly, yeah. man. And so what we wanted to do, what we want to do is surround that chef with mentorship and support. So they are going to get paid based upon the gross revenue of the restaurant. So are they going to own steak or? They're going to own steak within that year. And then well, also they own the business, the concept, they own the concept. They, they have, they own the, all the intellectual of that. property, right? They own all the IP. They get, uh, they get paid based upon gross revenue as well as salary. And then also simultaneously, the restaurant group will be, will be creating a savings account that will grow and grow and grow over that year. 
And then we will get them in a room with investors that have dined at that restaurant over the year with mentors and be like, okay, the restaurant group wants to give you this much money to go open up your restaurant. Yeah, your name. And so we also want to surround them with people, not, not just myself, but also like Ashley, our R and D director, a general manager, a wine director, a bar manager, um, people who are knowledgeable about health code, people who are knowledgeable about business and finance so that we can really develop them as much as we can. So then that way, when they do open up their own spot, they're much more privy to success. Um, so it is a crazy, it's a crazy concept because you literally have to completely change this thing well, every this year. This is one of the things I love about what I'm trying to, I'm like totally to my own horn right now, but like what I'm trying to do is to offer a perspective of different models. Like we just rinse and repeat the same model over and over again. And there's especially it, it, here broken. in Charlotte. Yeah. And it's broken and the only, but you don't know what you don't know. And I think so many people who get into this industry are so head down mm-hmm. grinding every day that they don't have any other perspective. They don't get outside the box, you know, and think right. and leverage the new assets and tools that are at our disposal. Like, yeah. you know, you don't have to start with a brick and mortar. You could do a pop-up or you could even start smaller. You can get into a commissary kitchen right. and just start pushing your food through ghosts, like through like, third parties you mm-hmm. know and just start there all you need is a website and rent to pay for your your commissary kitchen and, and a good product yeah and then just start in a good product obviously i mean that's one thing i like to say you're opening a restaurant i hope you can fucking cook can you do everything else <laughs> you know and it's the everything else that gets people in trouble yeah. um so but just just letting people know like you don't have to start with a million dollars you don't even have right. to start with five hundred thousand dollars as a you matter of fact as you've 000. proven <laughs> you can start with twenty five thousand dollars yeah you know and it, but it's a thinking outside the box and starting where you can yeah but just starting is the big thing yeah and you can't compare yourself to established restaurants like we brought this up earlier talking about people trying to mimic things that they see at like three michelin star restaurants and they don't have the staff the they don't have the place they don't have the access to certain ingredients and stuff like that Stop trying to mimic other people. Just tell your own story like, yeah. and tell it in a way that is delicious, that it is inviting, and that it's new. You know, Do that. Focus more on that than anything else. Yeah. And we've been talking about what you do to inject uh, the best culture possible here. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I think we were kind of dancing around it, but you said you want to talk specifically about the culture. So yeah. is there anything we haven't brought up in terms of the culture that you want to make sure our listeners get. Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, new book by Will, and I never pronounce his name. Last name, right? Guadara. Will Guadara. Guadara. Unreasonable hospitality. Yeah. You know, he has a quote that is, you know, restaurants that don't have a culture will call ones that do a cult. And, we, <laughs> it's well, every, uh, every restaurant has a culture. Yeah. It's just whether or not it's good or not. And so, what culture is, is what's literally happening in this moment. Yeah. <laughs> culture is omnipresent. It's always happening. It's always happening. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, you know, we were called a lot when we first opened and still to this day by a lot of restaurants, specifically here in Charlotte, that were a cult. And, you know, for a while I got kind of angry about it, but, you know, if I was an outsider, I kind of like it now. If, if I was an outsider <laughs> looking in, what would, what would make you think you're a cult? So the fact that we're so outspoken about certain views that we have in this restaurant, Sociopolitical. like, yeah. So like, you know, you are told all the time that you don't talk about, you know, politics and shit like that at the dining room table. I think that's the best stuff. Exactly. I think we like, should talk more about it. Our, so 
a month in to us being open was when our uh, RBG passed away. And so we did a course in a state that had just voted red, that had just voted in a lot of super like neoconservative politicians. We did a course in honor of RBG, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if you don't know who that was. Um, one of the greatest people to ever walk the earth. So we did a dish in her honor and it was a dish that was put together by our female chef de cuisine at the time, the only female executive leadership chef in Charlotte for fine dining. Right. And it really pushed people. And, you know, we've done menus that were based around mental health. We've done menus that, were around indigenous cookery and how what you think is history is not true. And these are quarter-long menu. Yeah. So not, it's not just a one night. It's right. for three like, months. We did a dish called Fuck Pablo Picasso that was all about how we need to focus more on Francois Jalot, his muse and also bearer of a couple of his children that had to fight through domestic violence for most of her um, life with him but came out of it and thankfully got out of that situation and became not only a better artist, but she's infinitely a better person, but no one talks about her. And to have that conversation with a guest, that's paying you the amount of money that we charge our guests. That's gutsy. Yeah. Like I don't want your opinions. I want your food. Right. And then at the end of every single one of our menus, every single one, every single one of our um, dinners, we line up our whole staff. And I individually introduce each and every one of them and what they do, what their position is, and what their name is. Because one thing that really bothered me is working in some of those high-level restaurants is that whatever you gave to the restaurant, that was now the restaurant. Yeah. That dish is theirs. Right. You know, you are just a piece. You're just a cog of that machine. I got into this with Cynthia Wong. Uh, she's in, in Charleston uh, last mm-hmm. month when I was talking to her. And she was a James Beard award-winning pastry chef. And she was sick of the 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 head, the executive chef putting his name on her, on her creations. Yeah, you know, and, and like we need to give credit where credits due. Yeah, because if anything, it actually shows a strength of the restaurant. Yeah, right. Like all of my people that are here can achieve greatness. Yeah, right. And the team that we have, especially now, I mean, they are stacked, and I don't mean stacked as far as resumes stacked as far as they are so creative they work with each other all the time like you hear about the dance in a restaurant like we literally during dinner we are doing the dance laughing with each other like i i crack up all the time because i'm like we might not cook the best food of any of the james beard finalists this year but we definitely laugh a whole lot more than any of them (laughs) and i'll take that i'll take that every single day because i have I don't have to be here for 13 hours in a day. I get to be here 13 hours a day. And that's what I hope all of our employees feel. Got it. Um, So how can we recreate this in our restaurants? We're inspired by you right now. So the number one thing is you have to give a shit. So, you know, at the end of the day, you are going to instinctively as a human being, you are going to go after what you put the greatest stake into, whatever you have the biggest vision and dream for. What I personally, and it can even be a situation that you fake it till you make it, but your focus needs to be more on what generational impact you can make rather than 
what is the singular moment that you can change right now? So like, and sometimes it can be the same thing, but like, instead of focusing so much on trying to get your food costs from 21% to 20.5% or trying to figure out a way to only pay someone that you're offering a job to X, Y, Z amount of money, because you know that they'll say yes. And that way, if they say yes to that, you don't have to spend this X amount. Instead of thinking it like that, think about what you're able to and get to do. I get to pay my staff a higher amount of money. I get to let, I get to give them dishes that they can work on and develop. It's a mindset of abundance. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, do you can, you can only, you can only put out into this world what you're willing to give. Yeah. And so if you want to really make a difference in the city, it's not something that can only happen within four walls of one restaurant. Like you have to, put together some sort of culture and some sort of decision really to make it get outside of those four walls yeah. and make more of a generational impact. What is the one thing that's holding the industry back, if anything, to moving in more of this direction? This is, this is a hot take. So we unfortunately glorified the wrong elements of the right people for a long period of time, specifically in the late nineties and, and 2000, like 2010, where I love Anthony Bourdain. I think that Marco Pierre white is a great chef, all, all of that. But what we looked at was the wrong thing. What's the wrong. Thing? We looked at, okay, this restaurant, like to be in the restaurant industry, to be an awesome chef, to be a badass cook, you have to have burns all over your arm. You have to yell at people. You have to degrade people. You have to have outwork. super outwork. You have to have super insensitive comments. This is a place only for guys. You know, all of this stuff. Instead of realizing that what Anthony Bourdain was writing about was actually, you know, this is kind of like, it's the entertaining toxic nature of this. But that's not the most beautiful part. The most beautiful part is the food and the experience and the kinsmanship that you can have with this, right? And then, you know, we need to really see, okay, the cool, like the best chefs are the ones that you have, like Jose Andres, for example, doesn't just feed people, he feeds souls. And like, we need to have more of a focus on that. And you have that, I think now with the generation of chefs that are being brought up through culinary school now is that they're focused more on how they take care of like how chefs take care of their people and how they're going to learn and be creative rather than I want to get on food network. I want to yell at people. I want a Michelin star. That's not cooking. That's not hospitality. That's just false expectations. Right. Um, and thankfully, you know, we always like to say that the number one thing that we do when people stop here is we do a vibe check, you know, <laughs> are they going to be people that not only get along with us, yeah. but are they going to be people that can positively, positively grow and influence the culture in the future too? Yeah. So the question was, what has to change? What has to change is we need to change up our priorities. Okay. We need to stop being so incredibly one. We got to stop being so outrageously focused on the guest and thinking that the guest is always right. That's one thing. Cause they're only out for their self-centered interests anyway. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. the same, but I mean, it's true. it's true. And then the other thing is that we have to, we're almost at the point where we have snuffed out this flame, but we have to get rid of 
the previous restaurant culture of yelling and degrading people and breaking people down instead of feeling finding ways that we can build people up and and really grow people. What has to happen now with the consumer? Mm-hmm. If the consumer's not always right, mm-hmm. where are they most wrong? They need to realize that a restaurant is not a place that when you walk into it, that you own it. And restaurants... Restaurants really, you know, how they even came to be was a place that if you didn't have, like, if we're going way back, specifically in the States, like, restaurants opened because it was a place that if you didn't have the money to have servants and have someone constantly cooking all your meals, but you wanted to have something nicer, you actually just wanted to eat. It was like a social kitchen. It's a social kitchen, right? So. There's this weird stigma that's been implanted in a lot of specifically American brains that, oh, when I have this table, this is my restaurant. I get whatever I want. I'm paying you money to do whatever I tell you to do. And what we have here is a flip of that, of you are coming here to experience what we've created. And you can either appreciate it or not appreciate it. That is a decision that you can do. But you are not going to change how we operate, and we're and you're not going to change our heart. Um, so, also like we want to try and fully get rid of like tip culture because that's another very messed up part of American uh, restaurant uh, culture. But like the guest needs to now come in thinking, okay, this is something that I'm going to experience. And I want to see what the chef and this group is able to put together rather than me going in there thinking that I own this house. Yeah. yeah. You're a guest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sam, I've really enjoyed today's conversation, man. Um, it's crazy. I think we've been going for about an hour and 45 minutes. Hell yeah, man. It goes fast, doesn't it? <laughs> um, is there anything we did not discuss that you were hoping would come to the conversation? Um, man, we, we really went through quite a bit, man. Um, but no, I'm just like, frankly, like I, I really appreciate when, especially people outside of the restaurant, they care about learning the why. And, you know, it, it, you know, brings us back to what I talked about at, you know, when I had my stage at Alinea is like, this person cares more about why I'm joining rather than what and how like I can operate. And I think to continue to have conversations and continue to have, um, relationships built upon why chefs and why restaurateurs and, you know, why people in the hospitality industry do what they do is the most important conversation. And so it's just been very refreshing to be asked questions about the soul and the heart of the restaurant rather than, you know, how did you come up with the idea for this dish? (laughs) It's like, that's just a very, very small part about what we do. Right. Well, the pleasure was honestly mine. And honestly, I'm tempted to go into the world of anthropology and why you're so interested in that. Because I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by our history, uh, like psychological evolution, um, biological evolution, anthropology. I really do think that the answer like the why of the future is in the past. Oh yeah. And just the more we learn, 
about what makes us tick and how we were evolved to coexist with each other. And the, I think the better we understand that, the better we can go forward trying to recreate that in business. Well, I'll leave on a, on this crazy cliffhanger. The more that we will learn about food, the more we will realize that we have to rewrite the history that we believe that food came from. So it's kind of, I don't know where you're going with this, but if, if it's what I think you're going to say, then just, just keep going. Sorry. But it's like Italy, you think of the ultimate ingredient in Italy, like in Italian food, it's tomatoes, right? Italy didn't have tomatoes till first contact with native nations of the United States, what we call the United States now. Right. So potatoes aren't an Irish thing. They're not. <laughs> they're South American. Yeah. Yeah. Sugar? And so, <laughs> so we have such a false understanding of where these things came from. Like, you know, we're doing a lot of in-depth research right now on a menu that we're going to do in honor of all these countries that their food was bastardized by the idea of curry. And so we were so thankfully invited into a very traditional Indian household and this uh, grandmother like made food for us. And she was like, do you see this fruit? This is called Chiku. And this comes from Mexico. But during the spice trade, it wasn't just a one-way street. Like we got things from other places as well. And so she was like, this originally came from Mexico, but we use it for this. And like, it just opens up a whole yeah, realm, you know? And it's, and you're, I think what a lot of people, even, you know, we kind of bash on some of these lists and stuff like that, but even the San Pellegrino top 50 list is honoring restaurants in like specifically South America, because people are going to very, very quickly realize that the most advanced and the most technologically like ep people of 500, 600 years ago did not live in Europe. No. In, in well, nowhere close. Like what we're learning is that the, <laughs> the, 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 in order to fix a lot of our problems with the world, that the, the, the secret is coexisting with nature. It's, yeah. it's figuring out what is the natural order, regenerative farming. Yeah. That's what, what we're talking about, right? Like yeah, rotational crop management and we, modern agriculture was learned by indigenous nations yeah, and, of North and, and South America. And what's crazy is 20% of the, I think it was 20% of the world population in like 1500 was eradicated. Yeah. In, in months, if not years it, or years, dude. I think it's probably years, but 20%. And we look at not to underplay COVID. I don't want to be sound insensitive relative to the things nowhere that were close. happening. You're not nowhere, nowhere close. close. 20% like, of the world population eradicated. Mm-hmm. And we didn't figure it out until 20 years ago. Dude, you know, like we were it's talking crazy. about, um, we were talking about, I man, I feel so bad. I can't remember if it was our get up on that mic. I think it was our modern art menu, maybe. I can't remember which menu it was, but we were telling people, I think it was our modern art menu. We were telling people, you know, the Inca were still around. Oh, yeah, because it was our surrealism dish. Because we did a Incan paella, and it was in honor of a what if, a surrealistic moment. So if the Inca and the Spanish coexisted rather than one person Deciding it would have never one thing. been able to happen. I mean, even if they got along, the, the yeah. disease is so it's like yeah. so surreal, right? Yeah. So that was our tribute to sur, uh, surreal the surrealism movement of modern art. But we were we were telling people if the Inca was still around today, they would be worth over two hundred trillion dollars, which is more than every other country in the world combined. It's a natural resource because of ni- natural resources and. Also, if you look at just historically, not what you read in an American textbook, but what you read, what you learn about in 
actual legitimate historical like texts and pass down stories, when you learn about how outrageously advanced the Inca, the Maya, the Aztec, the Creek, Cherokee, Iroquois, um, all of these incredible native nations of what we call the Americas today, it makes people of Europe look so stupid. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> we could go down a whole oh nother tangent. Yeah. But, um, but it, <laughs> we're going to have to, we're going to have to take a serious look at ourselves in the next few years and decide whether we want to continue to perpetuate false history or we're willing to go ahead and bite the bullet and be like, okay, we need to rewrite this. We need to own up to the fact that what we have been telling is not right. And we need to give credit where credit's due. Yeah. I think on that note, we can take our second break to thank our sponsors. (laughs) We'll be right back to bust out a speed round. This episode is brought to you by Ovation. Creating a great guest experience is the goal of every restaurant every time. But the ways to find out what's actually happening with the guests are terrible. Long surveys are annoying. Nobody likes to take them. Table touches aren't scalable. And every negative review costs you 30 new customers. Ouch. That's where Ovation steps in. Ovation gets happy guests to leave positive reviews, unhappy guests to share what happened, and it gives you specific ideas to improve. Using a simple two-question survey, guests either click a text message they get after placing an order or scan a QR code to easily answer how was your experience. Happy guests leave five-star reviews and can be invited back with automated text marketing. And unhappy guests share privately what went wrong so you can resolve your concerns in real time. Then the magic happens. Ovation takes all the public reviews and all the Ovation private feedback and analyzes them in a single simple view so you can know exactly what to fix and where. It's frictionless for your guests, easy for your managers, and powerful for you. If you're interested in actionable guest feedback, visit OvationUp.com slash Unstoppable. Unstoppable listeners get $100 off their setup fee. What are you waiting for? That's OvationUp.com slash Unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle. One Huddle is a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. One Huddle provides a mobile first approach to preparing the modern worker, a library of 3000 plus quick burst skill games and the option to instantly create personalized content. One Huddle is changing the way restaurants develop their workers by transforming the traditional manuals in videos into deceptively simple, highly effective mobile games proven to level up workers quickly. Let's get into some of the facts. So with One Huddle, you can onboard employees 45% faster than traditional methods. And there's actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven you can train your employees 45% faster using games on One Huddle versus traditional micro learning and video based learning. This new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience, both front and back of house, i.e. menu development, menu memorizing, POS, limited time offers, food costing, things like this. You're looking at a more engaged worker too, because 
They're in competition with themselves and the entire organization. This stuff is powerful. Right now, head to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash one, like the number one, and huddle like a football huddle. And if you use that link, you can get 90 days access to One Huddle's game shop, which includes 3,000 plus on-demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. Again, that's restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. And you have to use that link. This is a cost per acquisition agreement, meaning we get paid per lead that goes through that link. So if you are finding value in this podcast and you want to support, please use this link. And it's, it's a testament to how much we believe in one huddle that we're willing to do this. So thank you in advance. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, characteristic you believe most contributes to your success storytelling what is your biggest weakness there's so many which one do i choose from (laughs) (laughs) um i i trust people too easily what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team Number one question I always ask is what are your goals present and in the future and why does counter play play a role in that? What is your biggest challenge today? Finding the next batch of people that work at counter and Biblio to take over for when these guys move out and open up their own thing. How are you overcoming it? Conversations, building relationships. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a way to be, a way to act. You always have to give back as much as you take away. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So something that's common with, and not common throughout all restaurants, but something that you do to go over the top. You're like, screw the guests. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, um, this is supposed to be a quick answer. You're good. We can always clean it up on the back end. I mean, it's more like Charlotte doesn't understand certain, what I think are standardized elements of service. So like you should never have to open up your own door at a restaurant. You should always be not backhanded, but hugged whenever something's being dropped. But I think the, um, the biggest thing here as far as service is concerned, that's unique and different is, we also want to represent the other guests. So we're willing to tell certain guests that are being obnoxious, like shut up. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's actually one great rule. Like what, like what is the meter for when guests aren't right is when one guest is, is ruining the experience of another guest or one of your employees. Yeah. Oh, that's, Oh, you don't fuck with my people. (laughs) I I, I get very like mama, like mama cub. Or mama bear over that? Oh man, I think that's a, that's a great. If your experience, your no one's experience is more valuable than anyone else's, guest and employee alike. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great like line in, in the sand right yes. there. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make a better person or restaurant owner? I'm going to go against the grain because I'm sure so many are hospitality books, but uh, Running with Scissors. Ooh, what's the best lesson by Augustine Burroughs? Um, there is nothing greater than being yourself. Beautiful. And 
this is the last question, man. We made it to the end. Actually, no, I missed one. I'm sorry. I missed a couple. Where the hell am I right now? I'm getting that that three hours is catching up with me. I only got three hours of sleep last night. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe you can go three days. I, I need eight hours. Oh, I can't go trash. three days anymore. <laughs> All right. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Be open with the, being open and transparent with their staff. And what is one technology you've recently adopted within the four walls of your business that's had a huge impact on communication, uh, profitability, efficiency, anything along those lines? Technology-wise. Honestly, it is the removal of it. Okay. Um, like I tell my staff to not follow any <laughs> this is so bad like i haven't told anyone outside of the four walls this um none of my staff is allowed to follow any local restaurants on on instagram well i ask them not to i'm not like going through their instagram and be like why are you following them but like we ask them to not like follow any local yeah. restaurants on instagram why is that um it's because our aspirations of this restaurant and this restaurant group is to rewrite the narrative so if we're constantly focused on the current narrative our mind will automatically start following down that channel of, okay, this is what's being successful currently. This is what we need to do. This is how we, we need to emulate this. Got it. Uh, this is the last question. Okay. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. Mm-hmm. All the memories of you, your work in your restaurants would be lost mm-hmm. with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom. You could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? It would be this life is precious. One. Meditate. Two. Give back. Three. I've loved this conversation, Sam. Thank you so much. Uh, We do wrap up every conversation with having my guests call somebody out. So this is how I really, this is like, I don't want to be the one to decide who's a guest on the show. I really want to get to the point where the industry is steering the ship of restaurant unstoppable. Mm -hmm. So who do you respect? Who's doing it right? Who needs to be made an example of? So what's, what's been really interesting is like, you know, we say a lot, like we were not expecting to be a finalist for James Beard. Um, we weren't even expecting to be a semifinalist for James Beard this year. That's completely legit. We, I've been on the phone with our PR company when those announcements took place just by happenstance. And we were just completely shocked and surprised. Um, not cause we didn't think we didn't deserve it, but it's just like, we didn't see it coming. And with that, I've been able to obviously focus in and learn about other um, other people um, that have been nominated and things like that. Um, but frankly, like someone who is in the same category as us that I think has an incredible story and has done so much good um, is Sam with Tuk Tuk. Um, she is also a finalist um, for uh, the James Beard Best Chef Southeast. And then also, um, I'll do one more shout out, uh, Erica Allen of Urban Growers Collective in Chicago, talking about someone that just literally with one speech when she won a James Beard Leadership Award last year, completely fundamentally changed me as a person. She, she is a, oh my gosh, she is a hero. That was Sam at Tuck Tuck. And then Erica Allen at Urban Growers Collective in Chicago. Urban Growers Collective Mm -hmm. in Chicago. Where's Tuck Tuck? It's in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Got it. I th- you know it's what? It's on your way to... No, it's not on your way to... Uh, I think that's uh, actually... You know what? I think that... He or she? She. 
Okay, I think she's Sri Lankan. I think she might actually be on my radar. As Dude, a of fact. do yeah, it. That sounds super familiar. Do it. Um, all right, look out, Sam and Erica. I'd love to get you on the show. I'm coming after you. And uh, <laughs> actually, I'm going to be in Chicago in, in like two weeks. Oh, really? Yeah. We'll be I, there in three and a half. NRA show? No. Okay. National, National Restaurant Association yeah. show. Yes. <laughs> I just want to know. <laughs> and how can we connect with you, man? If we've really enjoyed today's conversation, we want to follow you. We maybe want to come join your team. Uh, so chef loosely on Instagram. Oh, we didn't talk about that story. That's a story for another. Day. Yeah, I feel like we're, just, I, I really enjoyed our time. Man. I think there's going to be another uh, interview in our future. Five uh, years but, from now, when you have restaurants all over Charlotte, we'll see. We're going to talk about how you did. Um, all right. So chef loosely on Instagram, L-O-O-S-E-L-Y. And then also Counter CLT or Biblio Charlotte. Um, it's the best way to follow us there. And then, yeah, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, um, we always do paid stages for anyone who wants to come in here and be a part of us. So just email me at sam at counterclt.com. Beautiful. And this is episode 996. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 996. We'll have a, uh, a summary of today's discussion over there as well as any links to tools, services, books, and how to connect with Sam uh, waiting for you to check out. Sam, thank you so thank much, you. my friend. This is awesome. The pleasure was mine. <laughs> there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Oh. Cheers. <laughs> There is another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef Sam Hart, for opening up, for getting vulnerable. Holy moly, what, probably one of the most vulnerable episodes I've ever recorded. And when we say our mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry, I mean, this is what we're talking about. Uh, there's a lot of things, I think, in the past with our industry uh, that weren't really great. Uh, unsustainable, emotionally unsustainable. And, you know, mainstream media, I feel like paints this picture of these uh, incredible restaurants and they're all the, all the narrative is always consumer facing. We don't talk enough about behind the scenes stuff. What's really happening to make these restaurants, you know, come to life. And is it worth it? I mean, are, should we be comparing ourselves to these restaurants that have armies of people and resources at their disposal uh, to deliver this level of creativity at, uh, you know, it's just not practical, you know, and I just want to make sure people understand the really what happens behind the scenes and we can choose to go into the future together in a different way, uh, a more sustainable way, emotionally sustainable, a more inclusive way. And I think, uh, Sam, your, your, your willingness to get vulnerable, to speak out and to, to go against the grain, uh, so willingly is truly inspiring, man. And, um, just, I, just, I just really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. And if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more real, genuine, unfiltered conversations just like this one, we need your support. You can support this show by supporting our sponsors, using our affiliate links, sharing this thing. Please share this podcast. Tag me, Eric Cacciatore in Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast so we can say thank you. And one other way you can support this show is coming to hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. We want to build community around this content and we want to create a place where you can go and find people like you who are, who are doing what you're doing, who can give you the support, who can share a perspective. It's, it's lonely at the top and it's, it's lonely when opening a restaurant. If you have nobody, you know, uh, who's doing what you do, who, who do you go to to ask for help? You know, the restaurant, 
Unstoppable Network. Well, we're here for you, and uh, we can't wait to have you join the network. So what are you waiting for? Head over there, do that, and I can't wait to meet you. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.